So today, um, I want to look at this story from Matthew chapter 2. And I'm sure it's a story that you are somewhat familiar with. And so I want to read the story. And then I want to um, talk about um, a question, a really important question that the first century church would have been confronted with, and not just the church, all people would have been confronted with. Um, and it's a story that has the question that confronts you as well. And so I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. As Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And they saw the star. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the goal in Matthew's gospel is to set up two um, opposing kingdoms, two competing kingdoms that are seeking your allegiance. They're dying for you to say, I am all in. And you see this play out through his gospel over and over. There are two roads, a narrow road and a wide road. There are two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder. There is a man with, with money, but he sees a field. And he goes, he sells everything he owns so that he can go buy it. And then the story comes to this climactic conclusion on a cross. For it seems that the one strong, powerful, mighty kingdom, the kingdom of Rome at the time, seems to have won the day. But there's another kingdom that's going to rise a few days later. And it presents these powerful, powerful questions. The question ultimately who is your king? Who is it 
that you will submit your life to? Who is it that you will give up everything to follow? And so Matthew begins this story with some tent pegs, some stakes he puts in the ground to give you a little bit of context of what is happening. So he begins, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, so he gives you this location in Bethlehem in the land, the region of Judea. And he says, at the time of King Herod, during the time of King Herod, and so another tent peg, we want you to know that Herod is king. He goes on to say this, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And to us, it's one of those things, it's a question, who is the king of the Jews? Where is he? Where has he been born? But there's a problem in this story. The problem is there is already a king of the Jews, and his name is King Herod. I forgot this, just a second. His name is King Herod. And, and for most of us, he's just simply a character that we don't think very much about. But during this time in Bethlehem, in the region of Judea, Herod is the king of the Jews. And so when someone else shows up asking the question, where is the one born king of the Jews, there is a problem, especially if your name is King Herod, because there is already a king of the Jews. So during this time, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire ruled the vast amount of civilization at this point. And the question comes then, how does Rome from Rome rule over all of these countries and regions and cities thousands of miles away? Well, what they would do is they would go into a city, they would go into a region, they would overtake, they would conquer it, and then they would employ a client king to rule over that part of the world on behalf of Rome. And their goal was to make sure all of the allegiance of the people of that city that region, that state, that country pointed to Rome and that everyone would bow down to Caesar Augustus and declare that Caesar is Lord. And so they found a young warrior named Herod. You know him as Herod the Great. And in 37 BC, he besieged um, Jerusalem, excuse me. In 37 BC, he besieged Jerusalem and he conquered the land. He took in over 11 battalions of infantry, basically between 15 and 20,000 men, and completely ravaged the city and conquered it and then became king of Judea. And like I said, his role was to make sure all of the allegiance of that nation, of that city, of that world pointed back to the Roman emperor Augustus. And the other role was to tax the people on behalf of Rome. So, you own a blacksmith shop in town, or you have a fishing boat, and you finished a long, hard day working, and there at your shop is a Roman tax collector who's been put in place by Herod, and he shows up at your door after working all day and all night, and he says, how much did you make? 
and you would tell him how much you made, and he would say, well, Herod, I'm sorry, Caesar gets half. And so half of your income would immediately go to Caesar. And then he would say, and Herod gets 25%. And then 25% would go. And then the tax collectors were allowed to tax whatever else they wanted on top of that. Many historians believe that during the time of Jesus, um, that an average working citizen was taxed somewhere between 80 and 90% of their overall income. They controlled the world. And so Herod was this young warrior who was half Jewish and half Edomite, and he had conquered, and now he was ruling over Judea, and he was called the king of the Jews. Can you imagine what a problem this would be? When some foreigners, some people from outside of Jerusalem show up and start asking this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? But as I said, for most of us, Herod is just a name that we read in the story. But Herod was an extraordinary builder. No place in his kingdom was void of some mark of his homage to Caesar. So he built altars, inscriptions, statues, even cities all over Judea that paid homage to Caesar. One of the things that Herod built was a fortress, a palace. It was on a mountain called Masada. Masada is a 13 Is that work? There we go. A 1300-foot flat-top mountain. And on this mountain there were seven palaces. Two really large palaces, and then five smaller palaces. It was absolute luxury during this time. Matt, this is not working, so you're going to have to click for me. This is an artist's rendering of what this might have looked like, these palaces. This next one is a picture of the colonnades that are still there, even to this day. You can see the, the detail that they paid. Now... As I said, this is in the middle of the desert, and there's a problem in the middle of the desert. There's not access to water, and the nearest water source was miles and miles away, and they had to find a way to get water to Herod's palace at Masada. And so they built these wadis. These wadis are built into the side of the mountain, and they used dams. As water would come in from these rain downpours, they would collect waters, and they would use dams to control the flow of water, and they would move through the wadis, down to the bottom, to the base of Masada. And then they would use workers that would bring them out, go back to this, yeah, that next picture, these cisterns, the the water would flow into these cisterns, and there are two of these cisterns at the bottom of Masada. And during the, the rainfall, an average rainfall, they could collect enough water in one of these cisterns to provide water for 10,000 people for 10 years. But there's a problem. The water was at the bottom of the mountain. And so they used a large slave force and oxen to carry water up the mountain back to Herod's palaces to fill his hot and cold baths, to take care of his swimming pool that was on the very top of the mountain at the top. This is a picture of one of the steam rooms in one of Herod's palaces. He used the latest in Roman plumbing to create these furnaces with an elevated floor held up by these columns, 
and they had perforated pipes that ran throughout this room, and these furnaces would supply heat that would push steam throughout this room. Herod was incredible at what he did. He built everything massively. This next is a picture of what is called the Herodian. Um, as I said, Herod was half Jew and half Edomite, and he wanted a palace, a fortress there on the edge, on the border between Judah and Edom. And so he looked around to try to find a mountain that he could build on. But the problem was this was a valley, and there wasn't a mountain. So Herod built a mountain in the middle of the desert, and it's called the Herodian. And you can see the, the excavation where they've looked at and, and seen the palace. But, but here, where Herod wanted a fortress, he went and he found a decent-sized hill, and he made it into a mountain where he built a palace that was impenetrable for all around him. At the time, the largest port city or harbor was in Athens. It was around 60 acres but there was nothing anywhere near Judea where Herod needed a port city so that he could control shipping and control power and have all kinds of stuff brought in. But the problem was the shoreline around Judea was all marsh. And so Herod built a port city and a harbor, and he called it Caesarea. Can you guess who it's named after? He builds a port city, and it was absolutely state-of-the-art. He poured concrete 80 feet down underwater 2,000 years ago and over 100 feet wide. And he built an, a harbor that was over 40 acres that it could accommodate over 300 ships. One historian tells us that as Herod is returning from a trip at one point, he looks out over Caesarea, and he says the city is magnificent, but it is not beautiful enough. And so he had concrete, he had marble, he had fine metals imported from Italy to cover the city with marble and fine metals so that from a distance, Caesarea looked absolutely stunning. He built a 500 uh, a 5,000-seat amphitheater with absolute perfect acoustics. They say even to this day you can stand down in the center of this amphitheater, talk in a normal voice, and it will magnify and project perfectly to everyone seated there. He built a massive stadium called the Hippodrome. It had a mile-long track in it, and it hosted regular Olympic events and um, gladiator games and, and things like that. Herod built everything on a massive scale. It was always amazing. He wanted to have a palace at Caesarea. And so he built on this little um, part of land that jets out. He builds himself a palace. And there in the middle, he wanted to have a pool. But because this is salt water, there was not a way to get water there. And so he built what are called aqueducts. These aqueducts run 19 miles from the nearest freshwater source. And every foot, it drops exactly one centimeter. They say even to this day, it's still less than one centimeter off at any point. So he brought in fresh water to fill his swimming pool 
in his palace at Caesarea. Herod was an amazing builder. Herod was also a family man. He had 11 wives and 43 sons. At one point, he got tired of his brother or his wife's brother. He didn't really like him, and so he had him drowned in the family pool. At that point, his wife wasn't extremely happy with him. And so leaving on a trip, Herod tells one of his attendants, if I do not come back from the trip, I want you to have her drowned in the family pool as well. And so leaving and coming back, one of his attendants goes and tells his wife this. And so coming back, um, Herod arrives and she seems a little bit more distant than normal. And so he had her killed. He had two sons who he thought was trying to usurp his authority and take his throne. And so he had them stand trial. And the, the ruling council at the time found him innocent, found the sons innocent. And so Herod had them killed as well. Anything that Herod did, anyone who crossed Herod um, was put to death. Caesar Augustus gets word of what Herod has done to his two sons, and he says, I would rather be one of Herod's pigs than Herod's sons. So a little bit later in this story, as Matthew begins to say that Herod had all of the two-year-old boys in Bethlehem and around killed, does it surprise you? Does it surprise you that Herod responds in this way? Later in life, Herod contracted a very debilitating disease. And knowing death was imminent, he ordered the most prominent Jews locked up in a massive stadium. Then he gave orders to have all executed inside at the time of his death. That is the only way he could guarantee there would be weeping and mourning at the time of his death. Herod, some historians believe, may have been one of the richest people to ever live. They believe his personal payroll consisted of over 500,000 people. The Jews, however, hated Herod, as you could imagine. But he wanted them to like them. And so he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And he enlarged the, the temple mount. So to this day, it now covers about 30 acres. Um, you can fit probably close to 15 full-size football fields in this place. Everything Herod did was massive. These pictures are pictures of Herodian stones. Some of these stones at the base of the temple are 10 feet by 10 feet by 80 feet, weighing hundreds of tons. Herod built everything massively. So, let's go back to the text. As you get a picture of who King Herod is. So King Herod heard about this. When King Herod heard about this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. When um, you hear the phrase, King Herod was disturbed, um, you probably say, well, yeah, Herod was disturbed. But the big question is, why was all of Jerusalem disturbed 
with him. If you lived in Jerusalem, there was someone that put food on your table. There was a reason that you had a job. If you were one of the religious elite, he was the reason you had this massive temple. And he was the reason you had control. If you were a money changer, everything went through you. If you were a tax collector, even though you might have been Jewish, everything you had was owed to Herod. And so anyone living in and around Jerusalem was probably one of the religious elite. They were in power. And as long as Herod was in control, everything in your life was good. Could you imagine if someone threatened your way of life? If someone came in and said, all the power... All the prestige, all the everything that you've always had might be in question. There's news. There's a new king. There's a new king of the Jews. Yeah, but we like our life right now with Herod as king of the Jews. We we like the life that Herod provides for us because everything is comfortable and we know no one's going to cross us and we know no one's going to come in and conquer because Herod provides protection. And so Herod, here's news that there is a new king of the Jews, one born king of the Jews, and Herod is disturbed. But the problem is all those sitting behind Herod are disturbed as well. Because threat to his power is threat to their safety. It's threat to their security. It's threat to their way of life. And so, here is a response. We have news. There is a new king who has come into the world. And people are disturbed. But as we said earlier, um, going back, he puts several different stakes in the ground, several different tent pegs for us to hang our hats on. And he says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, so we know where, at the time of King Herod, he says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And we don't really know where they're from. And, and hearing this story over and over in my life, it's almost just like, these guys just show up out of nowhere. Like, hey, we're, we saw the star in the sky, and we kind of traveled afar, and we're here with some gifts, and we don't really know. But he gives you a direction. And I think the direction is really, really important. As we've looked at throughout our time, as we've, we've opened up the Bible, east in Scripture means something very significant, right? What does east represent in Scripture? It's away from the presence of God. So in the garden, everything is well and everything is right, and man finds them out themselves on the outside of the garden looking in, and he said he moves them to the east of, the city, of, of Eden, 
They find themselves as exiles. And so they find themselves on the outside wondering. The garden is in the east, and then they're put on the outside. Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and goes to Nod, east of Eden. Abraham leaves all he knows, and he goes to the east. Because if Abraham is going to help bring God's redemption into the world, he has to go to where the people are moving, and the people have been constantly moving east. And east is the idea of people in exile, always wondering, never arriving. So east plays a significant role. It's this idea of being exiled and being outside. But there's also something else that happens to the east. During the time of Daniel, people are exiled from Jerusalem. And they're exiled to a place called Babylon. And Babylon is to the east of Jerusalem. And it says during this time when they're exiled that it's the best and the brightest and the smartest people of Jerusalem that are sent away first. They're sent away to the east. And so here in this story, I think Matthew wants you to get this picture of what is happening. Because I think there's a couple of options as they head back east. One, these are the great, 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 great grandchildren of people exiled from Jerusalem. The best and the brightest. And for centuries, they've heard stories of a coming Messiah who is going to come back and rescue and redeem. And as news begins to trickle out throughout the world, that there is a new king, the king of the Jews, a Messiah, the Christ. They hear news and they begin this journey from the east back to Jerusalem. The other possibility is they are foreigners. And they're sitting around the campfire. And these exiles who have been brought in are telling stories. One day, one day God is going to set his people free. One day the Messiah is going to come. One day the Christ is going to come. And when he does, he's going to redeem and restore and renew all things and bring all the nations under his control. And they've heard over and over and over these stories. And they begin this journey back to God to offer these gifts to King Jesus. You see, this story is powerful because it confronts you with a question. And there are two responses to that question. Who is your king? Because Herod hears that question. Who is your king? And he is disturbed by the news. And all of the people who have great life under King Herod's rule and reign are disturbed as well. Because if someone is threatening Herod's power, they are threatening our way of life. They are threatening our comfort and our security. 
And that doesn't sound real appealing. The question, who is your king, stands prominent. As all those in Jerusalem say, I I don't know about y'all, but I'm pretty good with Herod on the throne. I'm pretty good with putting my trust and my security and my hope in him. Because he provides a pretty good life for me. And then you have another group of people who are confronted with the exact same question. Who is your king? Who is your king? Is it the king of Jerusalem? Is it the king, the emperor of Rome? Is it the king or the emperor of Babylon? Or Egypt? Or Assyria? Who is your king? And maybe these magi say, you know what, we've seen Babylon rise and fall. We've heard the stories. And we've seen Egypt rise and fall. We've heard the stories. And we've seen Rome rise. I think it's only inevitable that it's going to fall. And so we're not going to submit our life to King Herod. And we're not going to submit our life to Artaxerxes or to Pharaoh or to anyone else else, we will submit our life to King Jesus. But our life right here is pretty comfortable and pretty safe. And we know tomorrow when we wake up, we're going to have everything we need. And we know tomorrow when we wake up, we're going to have safety and security, and comfort. Because long as, as long as Herod's on the throne, everything is okay in my world. But for these magi, there is hope in this proclamation. There is a new king. And you have these competing kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And it forces you to ask the question, who is your king? And I wonder for you and I, who is your king? Because it's really easy to sit in church and sit in a pew and say, oh, it's, it's King Jesus. Who do you find security in? Who do you find hope in? Who has to be on the throne for you to feel safe and secure? What if one day this nation 
goes the same way that Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome did. Where it rises and falls. Who is your hope in? Who is your king? Is it Herod? Or is it King Jesus? Who is your king? Father, today, I believe this story confronts us with a question. Because, Father, I know me personally, I I will say all day, oh, it is King Jesus. But, Father, I feel like sometimes my life doesn't always reflect that. Because sometimes, Father, I put my hope in who is in control and who is in charge. And, Father, we find it anxious when we feel like the wrong person is elected. We feel that we have our way of life threatened and put into jeopardy. But, Father, when we get really down to it, Father, it is a question about who we trust and who we hope in. Is it King Herod with his massive buildings, with his luxury, with his power and control, with his military force? Or is it truly King Jesus? who comes into this world as a baby in a manger in the back alleys of Bethlehem on a silent night when no one's looking and no one's watching. He comes into this world and he causes us to ask the question, who is your king? Because ultimately, in the end, the one who looks like they win, we find out, doesn't really win. Because the power of Rome that puts Jesus on the cross, the power of the religious ruling authority that puts Jesus there, does not win the day. The kingdom of God does. As Jesus rises from the dead. And Father, it is my hope and my prayer that we would set aside all other allegiances to be completely committed and completely sold out to your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, may we as your people bring the proclamation, the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ is king of the whole world and Everyone is invited to come and submit their life to King Jesus and find life. Because, Father, the wide road looks so inviting. And the foolish builder seems so smart at first. But, Father, we realize there is a better way, a different way that compels us and that causes us to follow Jesus. Father, today, 
may we be more committed to our King than we were the day before. As we beg and plead and pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Amen.